Thanks for downloading this episode of Cork Talk with me, Tim Atkin. A weekly conversation with some of the most famous people in the world of wine. This podcast is brought to you in partnership with Nomacork by Vinventions. Driven by a commitment to innovation, the new plant-based Nomacork Green Line offers significant improvements in wine closure performance. Thanks to a rigorous oxygen ingress rate, you can decide which cork is best for your wine, whether it's for young and fresh wines or for those with ageing potential. After a degree in botany and zoology, Prue Hinchke might have ended up working with seaweed or baboons, instead of which she chose vines after meeting her future husband Stephen Hinchke and following him to Germany to attend the Geisenheim Institute. Listen to us chat about her views on regenerative agriculture and massal selections, what it's like being the custodian of the 160-year-old Hill of Grace vineyard, and her dream of owning some vines in Mondol. Hey, Prue, how are you? Very good. Really nice to talk to you. I can't wait to learn from you because you're just such in-depth knowledge, basically. Where are you at the moment? You're in Australia, I know, but whereabouts? At the winery? Yes, we're at the winery. And, um, yes, just sort of easing out of a Sunday looking at um, ferments so so you're in the middle of vintage aren't you obviously yes we're yeah. in the middle just past middle and and, ev- and good quality i mean everyone said it's a bit cool this year in australia isn't yeah it? well everything up in the eden valley area is looking really good uh, there's a smidgen of botrytis mm. just creeping in because we've just had oh, 10 to 20 mils of rain mm. <laughs> which wasn't forecast no but that's that's unusual isn't it Yes, so it's come down from, um, I guess, the Indian Ocean uh, direction with um, thunderstorm activity up there. And it's very, very late for that to happen. And we're going to talk later about this crazy climate that we're living through and how you're dealing (laughs) with it. But I want to start by just getting into a little bit about your background because, you know, you're one of the world's leading viticulturists. I'm pretty sure it wasn't your original plan, was it? I mean, was wine part of your life when you were growing up? Um, well, it was in a way. My dad was very interested in wine and um, he would go search all over Adelaide for Hill of Grace. Really? Little did he <laughs> <Yes>. know. <laughs> Little did he know. <laughs> so he was a Hill of Grace drinker before you met Stephen, right? Exactly. What There's a... always in the fridge there were two milk bottles and a Hill of Grace bottle. Oh, I love that. That's very good. But, I mean, did you think, hey, I might end up going into wine yourself or not? No, there, there was absolutely no um, di- direction to take me in that way. Um, I was really perhaps um, more interested in the natural side of life. Mm. I'd read a lot of Gerald Durrell's books. Oh, yeah. And they inspired me. And then I read, I think one of my most favourite books was The Life of Marie Curie. And I was going to be a, you know, a scientist, a research scientist. Mm. Sailing off in my <laughs> car to save everybody. Uh, so, yeah, it was much more in the natural field. Yeah, so your family and other animals, a bit like a bit like Gerald Durrell then, yeah? Oh, yes, yeah. Well, they were fantastic books. But you studied botany and zoology at Adelaide University, didn't you? I and mean, what do you think you'd do with it when you graduated? Did you have a plan or not? Well, there were two plans. Um, one was to go to uh, Africa to study baboons. <laughs> which sounded really scary to me, so I didn't take that one up. And then the other one was to catalogue seaweeds. And 
Uh, I'm not sure a 21-year-old was really in the right mind space for doing that. No, I think you made the right choice, don't you? <laughs> and then you met Stephen, right? Stephen Henschke, your husband. What was he studying? Was he studying viticulture and oenology? No, he actually studied science at Adelaide Uni. So he studied um, subjects that would lead him into winemaking and viticulture. So he did um, botany and biochem. And it's in the in the botany, the last stages of botany that I actually met him. Oh, you just sat next to each other in a lecture or something? Uh, well, we we both. Um, my sister and I had caught, my sister had caught up to me by then, and uh, we were always fabulous cooks, so we were always inspired. And Steve was actually a, a diver, so he went off and got some um, abalone and um, <laughs> had the wine, of course, to go with it. And so that's how we met. So that's the what's a woman's heart, isn't it? Abalone in a bottle of Hill of Grace. I mean, he couldn't fail, could he? (laughs) It wasn't Hill of Grace. It was white. (laughs) Was it? (laughs) I mean, you you guys, you know, you're such a great couple. You seem to work very well together. What's the secret? Did you have the same philosophy on when it comes to wine and life? And yeah, I guess we've always followed the same interests Mm. because. yeah, I was thinking about this and I thought, well, we're very different people, but we do follow, we've, we've more or less grown in the same same atmosphere. You know, we, we've done botany together, we went to, we studied together, we sort of did everything together right. and there wasn't any sort of dichotomy in our relationship. So I think that's that it just has a sort of mutual respect. Yeah, and I think you're both fairly easygoing people. Would that be right? I mean, you seem that way to yes. me. I don't know if you are. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And then you both went to Germany, didn't you? Yes. You went off to the Geisenheim Institute. I mean, did you speak German before you arrived? Um, I had done a few lessons. Hmm. Um, not much. Did Steve? <laughs> uh, yeah, he'd done uh, German at school. Hmm. But it still didn't get us through the, the, the Munich train station to the tra- train on time. Never mind. Um, by the time we got to, we actually did some um, language courses in Freiburg, hmm. and that brought us up to university standard to then go on to Geisenheim. Yeah, and, and that, that was where your kind of passion for viticulture and plant physiology began, wasn't it? Or you got interested in that a bit in, yeah. in Adelaide? No, it was straight into it in in Germany because I guess um, there was an opportunity to work in the vineyards at the um, Vine Breeding and Grafting Institute Mm. with Helmut Becker and uh, he was more or less our um, mentor. Lucky to (laughs) have him. I mean, amazing figure in the history of of wine, really. Yes, very much so. Yeah. I mean, was the German approach very different from what you'd known back in Australia? I mean, it's a cliche to say that the Germans are more methodical and all that kind of stuff, but is that true or was it true then? Yes, they, they were more interested in... The, the things that we're now looking at in regenerative ag- agriculture, um, I guess more widely, um, soil health was a really important issue for them, canopy um, management, uh, new varieties. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of that, that vine breeding was going on in, in uh, Germany too. So they were way ahead of the curve, really, in, in terms of what the world's going through now? I think they had to be. Why? Because... Because they were looking at the economics of wine growing 
And honestly, a bottle of German wine was really cheap mm. compared to the world prices for wine. I think, yeah, it was, it, it was really hard to make money. So they, they had to market themselves. Mm. Really, there was not a, a, a sort of extensive distribution network mm. like we have now. Mm. And, uh, yeah, it was hard work. I mean, did, did Eisenheim make you see wine with, with new eyes, in a sense? Yes, yeah. I think because it was looking at, um, I guess we were looking more closely at clonal selection, mm. for one, mm. just what those differences were, um, and uh, certainly sight. Sight meant everything to a, a German Riesling. Mm. So that was a real eye-opener. And then their whole approach to how to look after the soil because <laughs> they were mostly on steep slopes mm. and around Geisenheim, around the Rudersheim area, Rangau area, you'd see big um, plastic bags of turf to replace the soil that they'd lost during the rainy season. Because of erosion, was, yeah? Yeah. Yeah. So that, that um, tells the story in itself, I think. I mean, I mean, you've mentioned Dr. Helmut Becker. I mean, what, what did you work with him on? It was sort of vine breeding, grafting. What other things did you learn with him? Uh, yeah, he actually managed that institute. Mm. Um, he was a vine breeder. Mm. So he did a lot of crossings. Um, he evaluated a lot of the previous crossings that the, the, the previous um, managers had done. Mm. And um, he... I think he was most probably the the, the most, um, I guess, the strongest voice for all those crosses mm. like Rachensteiner, yeah. uh, Ehrenfelser, all those new varieties that eventually <laughs> made their way to the UK. That's Bengler, so it's his fault, right? <laughs> yeah. And, you know, he was looking for really beautiful characteristics because <laughs> I think... Because of those crosses, Riesling, Riesling or Riesling, Silvana or yeah. whatever, they developed a, a more sort of um, uh, aromatics in the wine. So I think that that's really, he, he elevated that, that the beauty of Riesling really. To a new level, yeah. I mean, yeah. You went back to Australia, you went to Wagga Wagga. I love the name Wagga Wagga, which is Charles Sturt <laughs> University. Then you got this job at Roseworth. He's a technical research assistant under Peter Dry. There were some amazing minds there at the time. I mean, I read in one Max Allen's books that you said it was the engine room of the Australian wine industry. And what kind of came out of there at that time? Oh, certainly. Well, it, it was all about trying to define wine quality. Hmm. And they were looking, because it was mainly uh, viticulture, mm. they were trying to define wine quality through f fruit mm. quality. Mm. So I guess this all came up um, through Richard Smart's Sunlight into Wine. Mm. So he'd done a lot of work in, in, um, in the US looking at different canopy styles mm. and realised the impact of sunlight on, on grapes as to the the colour formation, mm. the colour and tannin formation. So we were looking at canopies, uh, the typical Australian sprawl mm. canopy, which was a lot of growth hanging over the, the grapes. They were shaded. Mm. They were also showing a high pH, high acidity uh, syndrome. So high pH is not good for red wine. If you go over three, the magic point of 3.6, 
you start getting into ugly ferments. Mm. So the idea was to try and work out what was going wrong. And I think that there was some work done also um, in Oregon with Steve Price yeah. um, into Queston, and that was a precursor of all these colour and mm. um, colour development, mm. um, tannin development. So by exposing the bunches, we the, the colour figures went up. They almost doubled. And we noticed that tannin maturity then came in yeah. and more flavour profile. Interesting. So that was that was the the big one, mm. I guess. Um, on the side, there was um, all the trellis research that Dick Smart did. Um, this is the smart di- the smart Dyson. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so the the variations of Scott Henry, mm. um, and I guess we we looked at everything. We looked at mm. Geneva double curtain and all those sorts of things. But um, really, Scott Henry was mm. the one that went out. Um, Site selection was big in those days, so looking for um, different areas to grow grapes, and this is where Tasmania came to the fore. Mm. Uh, what else? Oh, yeah, we did some, there was some clonal assessment on Pinot Noir and Chardonnay. Oh. So these two varieties have only really just come into Australia. Yeah. Um, by the more legal channels. <laughs> so, it's, I mean, very, and, very revolutionary times, really. I mean, it was, I mean, all those things have been vital for the Aussie wine industry, haven't they? Yeah, and um, yeah, even machine pruning, which I mm. think we look at back, back at in disgust now because <laughs> <laughs> of the problems with Utava. Yeah, but you know, they, they were, you know, everything was sort of delving into how to improve viticulture mm. in a big way. I mean, you started working with Stephen in 1980. You took on your current role as viticulturist at Henchkin in 87. I just want, what was it like, you know, joining such a legendary winery? Was it almost yes. scary to think, oh, God, I can't touch anything because it's been here since the mid-19th century. What can I do to change it? Uh, <laughs> well, it was like walking into a piece of history. Yeah. Um, and everything was done as it had been mm. for decades. Mm. And I guess... And with my German experience, I thought, no, things have to change. But I had to do it gradually. So I tackled the first big one. (laughs) I stopped cultivation. I thought that was the biggest problem that we had. You stopped cultivation of what? Of the um, vineyard floor. So Ah. weed management was um, full cultivation. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, it's just, oh, I can remember it stepping through uh, dry sand and then thick mud um, after vintage. So, yeah, it was not good. So there was, there was no cover crop, you mean? No cover crop at all? No, no. Mm. It used to be a, a sort of a, a, smuttering, a smattering of weeds. Yeah. Um, and uh, then uh, if, the, if they died off, all well and good. Um, mm. There was most probably very little mowing. Mm. And, um, yeah, it was... See that weed? Cultivate it. <laughs> <laughs> so, and, you know, and you started using compost and mulches, didn't you? I mean, really working soil health. Tell us a bit more about that. Yeah, that was the next step. Yeah. So once once we had the permanent swords in place, hmm. I guess we had to look at the undervine zone because that was another problem area. I mean, hmm. you can dodge till the cows come home, but you're still disturbing the soil. So uh, this was also, um, I was stepping into uh, 
um, the, the, the viticultural world where it wasn't really a, adapted to all these new ways. Mm. So well, I contacted um, a compost maker, um, Jeffries, to see if we could um, possibly buy compost off them because we couldn't make enough of our own. Mm. And uh, that's when we came across the green waste um, compost that they produced. Mm. But it was, it was a, a tragic mess. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> no, Still producing pretty good wine, of, wasn't it? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, but it had doll's heads and half-cut yeah. tennis balls and all, mm. all sorts of rubbish in it, mm. much like the old champagne vineyards. Yeah, yeah with the rubbish from the par- from Paris. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Look at it. Oh, mm. it was a kaleidoscope of colour. Yeah. And you switched to VSP for some of the vineyards, didn't you, for, for vertical shoot oh, positioning? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Was, that was a big that change, was really, wasn't it? Yeah, that was really important. Mm. And that's that was the one time when Steve and I had a serious argument <laughs> <laughs> about the length of posts and um, I guess it really to do VSP a service you've really got to have a, a metre of canopy yeah. and the fruiting wire at a decent height so that not everybody's crouching over to pick grapes so I was advocating for um, nine foot posts yeah I mean Stephen's what fifth generation isn't he um and just tell us briefly about the founder i mean johan christian henschke i didn't realize until i started researching he had a tough life didn't he i mean just the voyage out there you know he lost a couple of kids and his wife and yeah we we don't know terribly much about his actual experience but the book that fiona mcdonald put together for the hill of grace story Mm. um really uses a lot of references that were written mm. from that voyage mm. out on the skiold mm. and uh, the whole, um, I think the establishment of the, the villages. So they actually started off in Kroendorf mm. and then moved up to Canton later with the boys. Mm. And he was and from Silesia, was he? Yes. Yeah. yeah from um, Kuchlau. Yeah. So, yeah, that, that was a very similar. And I think that there's another book that if people really want to have a look at it, it's Hannah Kent's Devotion, mm. and that actually goes through the life of living uh, in a, a, a place that is sort of beginning to establish as a village. Yeah. And the interaction with the First Nations people yeah. is a, a fabulous. That sounds book. interesting. Devotion, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yes. I'm going to write yeah. that. Right. I mean, and yet, you know, this guy from Silesia who'd had this tough life planted one of the world's great vineyards, right? Hill of Grace. I mean, just tell us a little bit of what makes it so special. Was it him who planted it? No, it was actually ah. a neighbour, ah. uh, Nicholas Stanitsky, yeah. who actually came out on the uh, same boat, I mm. think. Um, so he was a, a market gardener, so he had a lot of professional sort of expertise yeah. under his belt anyway. And, um, yeah, I often wonder why did they select that little spot? Mm. But I, my bet is there was a huge red gum there that sort of indicated deep soil and a good soil moisture. Interesting. So, and, and it's actually a tiny little valley with a creek running through it. Yeah. And the... The, the oldest vines were planted right next to the creek. Mm. So we assume that they understood what the soil was like. Yeah, just by observation, really, yeah? 
yeah, yeah. A, a deep sort of uh, silk to red brown line. Yeah. So that's it, it's interesting. I, I often ask viticulturists about this about what makes a great vineyard great, <laughs> and and whether you can explain it scientifically or a bit of it is something we can't quite explain. Is it kind of an energy, a, a magic? I mean, I don't want to get too kind of spooky about this, but I mean, <laughs> what, I mean, you're a very trained scientist as well as somebody with you know, a strong emotional life and a hinterland. How, how do you see it, that vineyard? Well, I guess it's, um, it's a typical terroir mm-hmm. um, site. Mm-hmm. Um, 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 most probably... Um, variety played a very important role there. So Shiraz being um, really suited to that site and the soil type. I think he, I think you have to select the right soil type to dry grow. Yeah. Something for that long. <laughs> exactly. Well, it's, and, it's very old, isn't it? I mean, you know, how old is the vineyard? Yeah. It's over 150 years old, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. yeah. So it was planted it. just before 1860, we think. Yeah. We don't have a... Um, a record of planting, mm. but we do have a mm. reference mm. in 1860. So um, I guess the, the the fascinating thing is that yeah, you could have um, Mataro growing on that vineyard, and it's not nearly as evocative yeah. in its presence. But uh, it's maybe the best judge is our palate. Yeah, uh, what what we taste and I don't think science has actually caught up with our ability to taste flavor and structure mm. um, and all those um, things that sort of reinforce themselves on the palate yeah so. I think you're right D- just tell us briefly I mean because you, you have this kind of amazing relationship with this old vineyard I mean all your vineyards obviously you've got 110 hectares I think haven't you? but do old vineyards need to be farmed differently do they need to be pruned differently do they need to be is it a bit like looking after a very old person yeah, it is a bit because of the, the trunks being so fragile. So we'd never put a machine harvester over it. Mm. We'd never put a machine. Any sort of machinery, I guess, is really a problem. Yeah. So we undervine weeders, anything like that. So hence the permanent sward, the undervine mulching, mm. and also the pruning technique is important. And this is where uh, I guess the old boys really knew how to do it and I guess <laughs> it's a phrase often used when you're talking about the seminate and search mm. method mm. respect the sap flow mm. it's exactly what they did and they they always prune towards the growing point mm. or the, the live living part of the wood mm. and uh, it was from there that you develop the head uh, to keep continue the life of the vine it was very important to always keep that live part of the vine going. Interesting. And that was really important. And that's really what the seminate and search method's all about. So it's a modern method, but they're doing something that, 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 that people were doing 150 years ago in a way. Yeah, it, well, it, it all stemmed from um, the old um, gobelet or yeah. um, Basket. Let's talk a little bit about the about Adelaide Hills because you guys bought a, a, what was then an apple orchard. It was apples and pears and something else, wasn't it? In nineteen eighty one, um, in Lenswood in the Adelaide Hills, that was pretty daring at the time, wasn't it, to do that? Yeah, it was. <laughs> yeah, the whole the whole valley, the whole Lenswood Valley, was um, filled with apples and pears, mm. and there were these three sort of vagrant. 
um, winemakers up the top end. So we had Tim Napstein, mm. the Henschkes and... Um, Jeff Weaver, um, was he there? Yeah. Jeff Weaver, yeah. Brian Crozer, he's not too far away, was he? <laughs> well, he was He was at least two hills over. <laughs> Piccadilly, <so>. right? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, but, yeah, there, there we were. And, uh, yeah, it was quite, quite a challenge. And I think most probably people... Uh, thought the Adelaide Hills was too wet. I mean, there's over a thousand millimetres rainfall anyway. That's a lot. Yeah, yeah. and but it does come mostly um, when it rains. It rains double, mm. so um, that's where the steepness of the slopes, mm. the the rainfall, the heaviness of the rainfall. You really had to go to permanent swards, mm. and um, we had that sort of management under our belt, so mm. we could. Step in, and, and you've been in Germany as well, you know. Yeah, so you had that experience. Yeah, yeah, exactly. We knew it would work. Um, we did have a bit of poor set in Chardonnay, mm. which um, yeah, that really knocked us around. But um, we worked through that. And just tell us about the way you farm generally, because you use organic methods. I don't know whether you use any biodynamics, but I think I'm right in saying you're mm. not certified. I mean, you, no. I don't mean you as a person, I mean the vineyards, right? How would you describe the, your approach? Is it holistic? Is it regenerative? Is it sustainable? Is it is it just the prue method? I don't know. What would you call it? Uh, well, it's actually fallen into the category of regenerative. Mm. I think that's really now... That, that term has been coined, mm. it most probably appropriately describes what I do. Mm. So a lot about soil health, mm. um, yeah, biodiversity in the vineyard. I mean, that's bringing in my botany experience. Um, yeah, it's all about improving the site. Um, yeah, I'd, I'd say that it's organic, biodynamic, but also soil, soil health as well. Interesting. And you also have this mantra about living with the landscape. Does, it, does that mean that mm. you have to feel as if you're part of it almost? Yeah. Well, I think the most disturbing thing for me was to see in, in Switzerland our product being advertised with the background of South Africa. So I, I thought, well, it's because we don't feature our Australian landscape and it's mm. really beautiful. Yeah. So um, I decided, well, we our vineyards do look like monocultures, so it was important to start thinking about how to bring in the native vegetation. And I thought, well, I'm the only one who really is qualified to, to think this through. Mm. And so I put down on my list a range of spring flowering plants mm. and um, they had to be deep-throated white flowers mm. mainly mm. to attract beneficial insects. Mm. And uh, came up with a few, yes. So now I think that there's a, a project or a, a program, it's not just a project, it's now a program called Eco Vineyards, which actually develops up every available space within a vineyard with the native vegetation. Interesting. So that's, I think it's time. It's an ecosystem then, isn't it, really? I mean, it's, yeah. this is your holistic thing, I suppose. The other thing I wanted to ask you about was massal selections because you take a lot of cuttings from, from older vineyards. Can you just briefly explain the process to us? And, and I mean, I talked to Dylan Grigg, who I know you know very well, and was worked, you know, did a lot of work in the vineyard with you when he did his PhD at Hill of Grace. Do you believe in epigenetics as well, this sort of, um, I don't know, vines passing stuff on, really? Yeah, I, I think... I can really 
give a good um, example of this because we we did a mass selection on both Hill of Grace and Mount Eddleston. And this is from my Geisenheim experience. So I knew the program and we basically selected different uh, stages of the vine growth and we were looking for evenness or particular characters, maybe late late bud burst, um, early flowering, that sort of thing. Um, and out of this I selected the magic vine, the super vine, uh, in Mount Eddleston. And it had beautiful maturity figures and I thought, this is amazing. It's the, the perfect vine. I planted it in the mass selection and it didn't come up really? anywhere near the same. So we'd lost the epigenetics by taking the cuttings and regrowing. We, we, and this is what Dylan also says, that you can't replicate that epigenetic base from the old vine into the new vine. In a new place. Yeah. 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 So um, that was a great disappointment. Mm. <laughs> 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 yeah. But it certainly proved what Dylan's found. That's interesting, isn't it? I mean, the, the other thing I want to ask you about, you mentioned a bit at the beginning, this slightly crazy season you're living through. And I mean, a lot of the Southern Hemisphere this year has had a weird 2023 harvest. I mean, how seriously are you taking climate change? Are you noticing it very every day when the vineyards you're working in? Oh, I, I, this is really hard. Um, we're not seeing the same impact that Europe's seeing, I think. Um, uh, our, our season, so our vintage varies by four weeks anyway. We follow, because I guess Hill of Grace has always picked at the, the Easter moon, mm full moon, and that varies by four weeks. Mm. So we're seeing our vintage vary over that period following that four-week. You always pick Hill of Grace at the, at the full moon, the Easter full moon? Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, even this year. We, we were thinking, no, it'll be too early, mm. but bang, we were in the vineyard mm. on Thursday before Easter and then we finished Tuesday, Wednesday after Easter. Mm. And uh, it was amazing to think that we, I don't know what it is, but, and it's hard to explain, but that is the biggest impact on our vintages at the moment. Now, that's all related to temperature as well. And I can tell you for a fact that we're going to have an early vintage next year because the Easter moon's on March the 30th. Mm. So, uh, and we're going into El Nino. So mm. all this covers over the impact of climate change or that, that creeping temperature. Mm. So we're most probably um, finding them, there must be some gradual change mm. that we're not really noticing in, uh, because the overlay of all this changeable season stuff is happening. Mm. Um, but I think we're getting more extremes. You, you think you are? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, more extreme frost, mm. more extreme winds. Mm. So we had very uh, a hard uh, flowering time, mm. um, and then uh, I guess if we have heat, we'll most probably have a more searing. Yeah. Heat pattern. It's this idea of climate chaos in a way, isn't it? I mean, yes, there's a pattern, yes. but it also seems to be all over the place. You know, we're seeing that in Burgundy. I mean, yes. Well, I. I, 
I'd go, that's most probably a good word, mm. climate chaos. Mm. Um, and we, we, it sort of disrupts what everybody else is seeing yeah. as climate change. So tell me a little bit about the work you're doing, and this is, ties in, I suppose, with climate change to a degree, with non-classic varieties, at least in an Australian context, things like Kunawas and Barbera and Mataro, although Mataro did exist historically, and, and Grunefeld mm. Lena from Austria. Wh which do you think of those has the most potential in, in your setup? Well, uh, I guess um, Grunewald Lena is one of my favourites. I mean, I fell in love with it when, when we were in Germany and travelled over to Austria. It's just this beautiful, spicy, rich, almost Riesling-like, but not quite. It's more evocative. Mm. <laughs> and um, I, I really enjoy that, that lovely spicy note in the wine. Um, so I'd pr I prefer that far in advance to Sauvignon Blanc. Most of us <laughs> I do. Just, oh, <laughs> I, I really struggle with Sauvignon Blanc. But anyway, the other red varieties, I think, well, this is something we learned from our friends over, over in Europe. Perhaps uh, using Cunois as a blender mm. will bring up the acidity naturally. Mm. So it's got a very high acidity. Mm. Same with Barbera. Mm. Um, it's influence on, say, Nebbiolo. Mm. Um, so they're... They're great um, sort of balances. And I think as we go into um, the subtle changes of climate change, maybe these varieties will be a huge help in maintaining that acid profile. And is that something that viticulturists are talking to each other about? I mean, you know, oh, which, yeah. which varieties work best in, in this changing climate? And and it's a real, um, we were talking about it the other day because we talking to CSIRO about their new breeding programs, what do we want? Mm. What do we want CSIRO to actually breed? Mm. And we're saying, well, we, we're looking for varieties that could act as blenders. We're perhaps not so over the moon about new varieties, mm. Mm. but it would be nice to have something that doesn't get powdery. I mean, it, it, powdery <laughs> mildew, yeah. I mean, are there yeah. any, any, any varieties that might fall by the wayside? I mean, Merlot, for example, I mean, is that suffering with climate change? I think Merlot, yeah, mm. badly. Yeah, well, <laughs> wouldn't be a loss as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's really, I mean, yeah, it's it's sort of lost its uh, flavour profile in in preference to say Nebbiolo or yeah, or Cab Franc, um, you know. Yeah, yeah even yeah, Cab Franc, yeah. yeah. Is one of the things I always want to ask is, is there anywhere else in the world you'd like to make wine? I mean, you've done it in Germany or, or work in vineyards, really, and obviously grow grapes. Yeah, yeah. I think um, the day we went to Bandol to D Domaine Trompier mm. and overlooked the Mediterranean, that was the most beautiful, absolutely gorgeous vineyard site I've ever been in. And I thought, this is this is heaven. That's a pretty <laughs> lovely. Yeah. Well, I mean, be. you know, <laughs> the the French Mediterranean is pretty lovely, isn't it? I mean, I was lucky yeah. enough to live in Avignon for a year. It's not too far away when I was a student. Man, man that's so beautiful. <laughs> okay, Bondol, yes. I'm going to hold you to that. I'd like to see you go down there, just do a bit of work in the vineyards and tell them what for, right? <laughs> Listen, and final I'd question. Also, I'd, go on, where I'd else? I'd love to be in Alsace too. I reckon Alsace. Uh, that's the Germanic bit of you again coming out, is it? Yeah, but it, it's most probably, I, I mean, that whole area is beautiful, the southern Rhine, the yeah. Baden area. No, it's, but 
Alsace, you eat better. Yeah, you certainly do. <laughs> <laughs> Some of the great food of the world in Alsace. Yeah. Yes. I mean, I want to ask you this as well, just how you get away from wine. Are you a big cook? I mean, you're a great thinker. You've got your grandkids, I know, but just tell us what you're reading. You know, what, what do you do when you're not in a vineyard working hard? Oh, well, um, yes, I, I love to play golf. Yeah. Yes. Now, <laughs> I've played since I was a little thing, so... That's because I lived close to a golf course when I was uh, young, so that's why. Um, yeah, I love working in the garden um, and also love cooking, yes. So the two go together. So the, the, botan- the botany bit of you has never left you, right? The, the Gerald no. Durrell, your family and other animals and plants. Oh, yes, <laughs> and I'm, I'm well known for walking, looking at the ground. Anyway, <laughs> and what, what I'm reading at the moment is actually... Very interesting. I'm reading through the series of the first knowledges. So this is about the First Nations people. Mm. And it's trying to put down their their history, their traditional methods, their even their astronomy. That was yeah. the first book I read. It was amazing. Yeah. And I think what they can read in the sky is is sort of aligning to my my ideas of the influence of the cosmos, so in biodynamics. Plants, it's most probably a, a given. Yeah. Um, and uh, I've just started reading the song lines. Ah, now, this the, the Bruce Chapman really, book. Uh, well, yeah. it's, yeah, it's it's sort of more the, the, uh, the First Nations people writing about it yeah. themselves. Mm. But, yeah, it's, it's a very... Um, yeah, it's hard hard to get through, but it it's a different way of thinking, a different mm. way of education. I like that. Dif- different way of thinking, different way of education, and different way of, of, of working in vineyards, which is what you've brought really in many ways to the Australian wine industry, I'd say. Yeah. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> yeah, true. Listen, it's been amazing talking to you. I could talk to you for hours. It's so fascinating listening to you know the, the way you've changed this icon, really, and made it, I would say, even better. I mean, the most recent vintage of the 18 is just... Stunning. And I'll be doing my tasting notes this week to coincide with this podcast. So anyway, listen, it's been great talking to you and I'll see you very soon, I hope. Thank you. Prue really is a legend and the quality of her grapes is evident in those Henschke wines. Next week on Cork Talk, my guest is Pablo Alvarez from Vegas, Sicilia in Ribera del Duero. Join me then. Thanks for listening to Cork Talk. If you want to read more reports, articles and tasting notes by me, go to my website, timatkin.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Tim Atkin and on Instagram at Tim Atkin MW. See you next week.